0: Hey, everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, the podcast where we talk about all of that and then some. I'm a registered nurse with 20 years in the labor and delivery trenches. I'm the mom of many. And if you checked out my Mother's Day post on Instagram or Facebook, you'll see a picture of my big, beautiful clan. I'm pretty proud of them, and I'm hoping they don't mind my gushing about them just a wee bit here and on social media. Go find Common Sense Pregnancy over on uh, Instagram and Facebook, and you'll see why. I mean, really, they're just gorgeous. I am also the author of a few books, and the ones I talk about the most are Common Sense Pregnancy and my new book, Mom's Side of the Story, Common Sense Pregnancy is the book that started this podcast conversation and mom's side of this story, or as we're sometimes calling it, mom's SOS, um, it's brand new and it's available over on my website, Jeanfogner.com. I'm pretty excited about this new book because I really hope it's going to help women take control of their pregnancies and change the narratives of standard prenatal care and shift the dynamic on who is documenting your pregnancy and charting its course. Frankly, I think that should be women who do that for themselves. I get it though, that most women aren't trained in charting and taking a medical history or reviewing tests and treatments. But frankly, with just a little bit of information and a few little tools and somewhere to keep track of stuff, any woman can chart a new course for herself and her healthcare. And that's what Mom's Side of the Story is about. It's a guidebook for how to do that. It's a journal for documenting all kinds of feelings, circumstances, and experiences that you're going to have during your pregnancy. It's full of writing prompts and information you'll want to consider and the how-tos of documenting your health history, your healthcare, your personal goals, your circumstances, and a whole lot more. And it's You know, my, my goal is that it's the place where you will write yourself into your pregnancy and baby's life story, because after all ladies, you are the main character in your life and your child's. You are the one who drives the entire plot line for both of your life stories. You're going to want to write a few things down. So go on over to genefaulkner.com and check out mom's side of the story yeah, I'll spell it, J-E-A-N-N-E, Faulkner, F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R.com. And while you're over on the website, check out our super cute cup of common sense, which I'm drinking a cup of tea out of right this very second. Oh my goodness, let's see. <clears throat> so lately, we've been talking about other stuff, and all the while... There's been a ton of stuff regarding maternal health, women's health, and reproductive health happening in the news and big discussions in current events. And I thought I'd just bring up a few things you might want to go check out and be aware of that are happening right now. Um, And I want to talk a bit about how they relate to pregnancy, parenting, and feminism. Um, one thing that was really, really I enjoyed a lot was I had a chance to go hear Heather Har- excuse me, Heather Armstrong, read from her new book, The Valedictorian of Being Dead, the true story of dying 10 times to live. Now, um, I had a chance to meet Heather several years ago because she is on the board of directors for Every Mother Counts, the um, maternal health organization that I used to be the senior writer for. Um, and we had the opportunity to make a trip to Haiti. So I got to know her just a little bit at that time. Heather Armstrong is the New York Times bestselling author and creator of deuce.com. And she's among the first women to blog professionally and honestly about her pregnancy, her severe postpartum depression, and over the ensuing years about her life as a mom. Um, In her new book, she writes about her experiences as only the third person ever to participate in an experimental treatment for depression. Um, It's an extreme cutting edge treatment that Heather and others are crediting with literally saving their lives. Um, You really got to check this book out. And if you have a chance to hear Heather on her book tour. I mean, she's just lovely and and no one else better to be telling this story. Um, she just does a beautiful job of talking honestly about her mental health and treatment. And in the process, she opened doors for she's opening doors for breakthrough treatments and reducing stigma surrounding mental health. And I'm grateful for that. Um, again, I really recommend her book, The Valedictorian of Being Dead. And I'll put a link up to it over on my website. Oh, what else? We've talked a bit here on the podcast recently about um, the U.S. having relatively lousy maternal health statistics, particularly for women of color. Now, in honor of Mother's Day, lots of news outlets did stories that focus on maternal health or mothers' lives. And um, several did stories on why so many more. African-American and indigenous women and other women of color die from complications related to childbirth than white women do. Um, I particularly like the story PBS NewsHour did on May 12th titled Nine Ways Racism Impacts Maternal Health. Um, it brings up the fact that the health of Black pregnant women and mothers is a key issue that's you know being debated in the 2020 presidential campaigns. And we've mentioned that here a little bit on the podcast, Um, especially by Senator Kamala Harris and Senator Elizabeth Warren. And uh, recently Senator Harris introduced a resolution to raise awareness about the disproportionately high rates of pregnancy related deaths among black women. And it was co-signed by a bunch of senators, and I'm gonna I'm gonna call them out and name them by name because I'm just proud of them. Senator Tammy Baldwin, Democrat from uh, Wisconsin. Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois. Ron Wyden, Democrat from Oregon. Hey, Senator Wyden, thank you. That's my senator, <clears throat> Amy Klobuchar, Democrat from Minnesota. Jeff Merkley, another Oregon senator, Democrat. Uh, Debbie. Stabenow, Kristen Gillibrand, Sherrod Brown, Diane Feinstein, Maisie Hirono, Richard Blumenthal, Cory Booker, Patty Murray, Tammy Duckworth, Ed Markey, and Chris Van Hollen. They are all Democrats. And they all signed on for this resolution. So, um, if your senator is on that list, send him a thank you note, will you? If he or she is not send them an email and ask them to get on it, will you? Especially if your senator is a Republican. We need both sides of the aisle to be stepping up to help protect the health of all pregnant women, but especially right now, the health of black pregnant women and women of color. Um, And while you're at it, send them an email offering to partner with them in spreading the word about this important resolution. It can be as simple as, you know, downloading information and learning all you can about it. And then inviting a few friends out for coffee and having a conversation. This is important stuff and it's going to take a public flood of informed people to change the culture that's causing American women so much harm. Um. Oh, let's talk about the Georgia abortion ban just a little bit. Um, I think that most of you know that women don't always have abortions for, you know, I I mean, I want to rephrase that. Women have abortions for all kinds of reasons. And regardless of where you stand on the pro-life, pro-choice, you know, debate, I guess we could call that. I think most informed people can agree that sometimes it's just downright necessary for the health of mother Um, or in circumstances where That pregnancy is going to cause irreparable harm or in, you know, cases where that baby is not viable. I mean, there's just all kinds of reasons why we need to have abortion legal, safe, and accessible for all women in the United States. Georgia's Republican governor, Brian Kemp, signed legislation on Tuesday banning abortions once a fetal heartbeat can be detected. And that can be as early as six weeks. Um, I I know a lot of women have no idea that they're pregnant at that early. So the new law goes into effect um, January 1st, and the way that it works is that it gives a six-week-old fetus the legal status of a human being. One definition of second degree murder in Georgia includes cruelty to children during which he or she causes the death of another human being, irrespective of malice. This raises the question, and I'm reading here from an article about this. This raises the question of whether a woman who miscarries because of what is perceived to be her conduct could be held liable for that conduct. This suggests that women who caused the death of a fetus with or without malice could be charged with second-degree murder. And that is reported, that is quoted by Eric Segal, a law professor at Georgia State University and a supporter of abortion rights. He said also that the law would most likely be struck down in lower courts. Now Kemp said that he was signing the bill to ensure that all Georgians, th- this is a quote by him, To ensure that all Georgians have the opportunity to live, grow, learn, and prosper in our great state. And I have to wonder if that term, all Georgians, includes women, all women who want to live, grow, learn, and prosper without fear of damaging their health, fear of dying, fear of destroying their livelihoods, their futures, you know, with an unwanted pregnancy or one that threatens their health. Um. I'm going to put some links up on the blog that you can get way, way, way more information about this. Um, There's also some really exciting new development in terms of postpartum depression, which uh, it impacts as I think that the statistics are as many as one in seven women who will experience postpartum depression. But Um, Up until now, there hasn't been anything really, really specific to postpartum women to treat it uh, until now. And on Tuesday this week, the FDA approved the first drug specifically for severe depression after childbirth. The new drug is chemically called brexanolone. And I think that it's being marketed under the name Zulreso. These names, they're intense. Um, it's being designated by the FDA as a breakthrough therapy which speeds it up through the review process and um pre- prior to this approval, women received antidepressants if they were you know in pretty bad shape with postpartum depress- depression um, but that can take up to three four weeks before you're feeling an effect. That's a long time in the life of a postpartum mother and baby um, but this new breakthrough treatment. Brexanolone, alone, uh, it provides mood improvement in hours in instead of weeks. And especially for patients who may be suicidal, um, that's critical. So it's kind of amazing. It's an IV treatment. Patients get it continuously for 60 hours. Um, and the I think that the company that funded the study of new moms with moderate or severe depression, postpartum depression, half of the women um, had their depression end within two and a half days, and that's about double the rate of those compared to the group given a placebo. That is fascinating to me. That's fascinating. That's a life changer. Okay, just one more, uh, and then we'll start talking about this week's guest. Um, This article comes from the Huffington Post's um, New Living section, and this article is by Monica Torres, and it's titled, Five Infuriating Facts About the Motherhood Penalty at Work. Um, It's so good, and I I really want you guys to go look at this because she just lays lays it out, but I'll give you a couple of, of her five interesting facts. One. You're forecasted to be paid less for each child you have if you're a mother, but fathers will be paid more. And she's this these uh, this article is just full of statistics that she's done the research on. But one that, under this heading is: women lose four percent of their hourly earnings on average for each child they have, while men earn six percent more. Hmm. Hmm. I say. Hmm. Okay. Number two, you can be married and childless and still face a motherhood penalty. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from her article here. Are you a 30 something married woman with no plans to have children? Even if you do not want or plan to have children, your employer may still think you do and penalize you accordingly. Um, The conjecture that Employers consider childless but married women at particular risk of becoming pregnant, and um, they the study's authors interpret this as presence of hiring discrimination based on realized and expected fertility for part time jobs, um, which is kind of surprising to them since part time jobs are supposed to be kind of family friendly. So what that says is that if you're thirty and you're applying for a job. And, um, even if you don't want to have children, an employer might look at you and say, nah, she's of an age. She's going to want to have kids pretty soon, no matter what she says. And they may pass you over for somebody who they don't think is going to have kids. That's true. Um, the remaining three are super interesting too. And the whole article is just great. So for those of us who like data and stats and that kind of, of thing, I want you to go on over and look at it. I'm not going to give you the rest of the five because I want you to go read it for yourself. But I'll put the link up. And, um, you know, that's your homework this week. Read those articles. Okay. Speaking of those who like data stats and facts, that's what we're going to talk about with this week's guest. So let's take a real quick break here and then we'll get this week's guest on the line. Okay, we're back, and before we get this week's guest, I want to mention one more time that we've got merch over on Jeanfaulkner.com. and I'm especially excited about the new book, Mom's Side of the Story, because I want you to write and control your own motherhood story, and for sure, ladies, everybody else on your healthcare team is writing about you. Shouldn't you be writing your story too? Mom's Side of the Story, a common sense guide for planning your birth and telling your story over on jeanfaulkner.com Okay, this week, we're going to talk to a woman I've been wanting to chat with for quite a while. Emily Fair Oster is an American economist and bestselling author. After receiving a Bachelor of Arts and PhD from Harvard in 2002 and 2006, respectively, Oster taught... At the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. She later moved to Brown University, where she holds the rank of professor of economics. She wrote Expecting Better and is the author of the brand new book, Crib Sheet. Let's get Emily on the line. Hey, Emily, it's Jeannie. How are you?
1: Hi, Jeannie. How are you? I'm good.
0: I'm doing really good. Emily, I read your extremely awesome bio before getting you on the phone today. And um, I'm just, I'm loving it. I love it. (laughs) I love love your career path and your study path and the work that you're doing. And so before I ask you the very first important question, where in the world are you?
1: I am in Providence, Rhode Island, where it is cloudy and cold, but uh, otherwise nice. (laughs)
0: sorry about that. Portland, Oregon, it's going to be 90 today, which is weird for us.
1: That's weird.
0: I know. We're usually rainy and cold. We're we're right there with you. But no, it's gorgeous right now. Every bloom is popping and it's going to be a high of 90. It's unbelievable.
1: That is
0: nice. Yeah. 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 So the first big question is always this. Now that I've read your bio, who are you and what do you do?
1: I am a professor of economics at Brown University, um, and I, so I, I do professing is my main job, um, and I write books, uh, so I am the author of two books, Crib Sheet, which is about using data in uh, raising your kids, your little kids, and expecting better, which is about using data in pregnancy. Uh Um, And I'm a mom. I have two kids. My daughter is eight and my son is four. And I have a husband who is also an economist uh, whose name is Jesse.
0: You know what? You work in a world that I am so unfamiliar with in terms of being an economist that I really have to piece it together what the right questions are. But as a nurse um, and somebody that writes a lot about health and healthcare, I am real comfortable with looking at data and trying to figure out what's valuable and what's not. But I'd really like to know a little bit more about your career path and, and how do you end up as an economist teaching at Brown University?
1: Um, so, you know, I, um, I studied economics in college. Okay. Now, um,
0: now just wait, 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 okay. <laughs> why, why did you do that? Oh, Have- my
1: parents are, my parents are economists. So okay. I childhood. Um, so my parents are economists. Uh, okay. They are also economics professors. Um, and I, uh, I actually have always been super interested in, in health and, and sort of science. And so I, um, I came into college thinking that I would be um, – thinking that I would be a doctor, I guess, uh, or yeah. thinking that I would be a medical researcher or something like that. And then I did some kind of medical research not – med- not, that's, that's an exaggeration. I did – I worked in a fruit fly lab honestly, the first summer in college. And I was just like, oh my goodness, this is not for me. Um, And, you know, later as an adult, I recognized that perhaps using uh, three months in a fruit fly lab to like decide your career path was maybe not like (laughs) super thoughtful. Um, But anyway, I was like, forget it. Like I am not going to be, I'm never going back to the lab again. And so I am, so i i was also you know pretty interested in in economics and so i i started doing more economics and i realized actually i really liked uh, i really liked doing doing research in that space um and so i i majored in economics and did some research uh even as an undergrad and then i went to grad school also in economics um and then i became a professor um initially at the university of chicago so i actually worked for like a large number of years uh at the university of chicago that's um, where I wrote the first book, um, and then uh, and then I moved to uh, I moved to Brown um, like five years ago, and now I work here.
0: Okay, so now it's all making more sense to me. I just am so I guess economics is such a weak link for me and something I'm a little terrified of. But it's hard <laughs> for me to imagine. I know that there are kids out there who graduate from high school and say, "Yep, economics, that's what I'm going to do." I just can't. Imagine it. But it makes a lot more sense to me when somebody says that they discovered it. You know, they went into college thinking they were doing this other thing, and then they discovered it. And then (laughs) they're fascinated with it. Now I get it. There you go. So, yeah. So now your authorship is um, focused around, you know, Expecting Better and Crib Sheet, which are, you know, your – your parenting years, but when you are a professor, what are you teaching about? So I what is your subject?
1: I teach about health. Um so my my sort of research area is um is health economics. So I I I study when I, I do my like academic research, it's about um mostly about how people make health health decisions. Um so it's not mm-hmm. um it's not unrelated in some ways to to some of the issues that I that I grapple with in the books about kind of how do we uh, think about evidence, um, when people are making, you know, choices, um, when people are making choices that are influencing our, our, evidence. Um, but you know, it's not that, it's not that I don't, I don't research the same topics as, as the books, I guess.
0: Yeah. 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 Health is a wide, it's a wide spectrum a topic. topic. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah. But I'm, I'm really fascinated in that topic though, because, you know, there are so many factors when people are making decisions about their health. And, you know, as you know, with especially in terms of prenatal care, labor and delivery care, postpartum care, parenting decisions, there's so many different factors. And, and I think that it's even more complicated for women than it is for men because of the way that we've been enculturated to maneuver healthcare dynamics and healthcare relationships. It's complicated.
1: Yeah. I totally yeah. agree. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. So, did your interest in writing about pregnancy and parenting data stem from having your own children?
1: It did. Yeah. So yeah. I, um, as you might imagine, uh, yeah. So I got you know now like I guess it's now like nine nine years ago or so. Um, mm-hmm. I got uh, I got pregnant uh, with my my now eight year old daughter. I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, you know, I had uh, a. I, I mean, I guess one one thing is sort of up to that point I had not had a lot of interactions with the medical system. Um, mm-hmm. which was very fortunate for not not fortunate because of I don't like the medical system, but just fortunate that I had not been sort of sick in any particular way. Um and, right. you know, when I when I but of course when you're pregnant you interact with the medical system all the time. Uh, and I I was um I was surprised at the uh, sort of lack of, of evidence, at least that was provided to me about some choices that I thought were very important. Um, So, you know, I, in the first book, I talk like a lot, in some ways, a lot of the first book is about things like, you know, can I have a cup of coffee and, and, you know, can I have sushi and things like that? Um, But actually, you know, for me, the, the biggest things when I got pregnant was just thinking about prenatal testing. And I, I, this was something I really cared about. I really wanted to understand what the choices were and what the implications were and how much information I would get. And I found myself in a place where people were like, okay, well, this is your age. So here's the test we recommend. Yeah. Like, which was sort of like, well, that's not like there's almost nothing else in my life where people are like, well, as a 30 year old, here's what you do. You know, yeah. it's like, and so I, I, and then when I pushed, it was like, Oh, we, we don't have any more time to like, talk about, talk about but, this. And so.
0: But wouldn't it be a little handy if there was a guidebook like that? Right. Exactly. So I was sort
1: of like, you know, and so then I was like, okay, well I'm mm-hmm. going to go like do some, you know, do, do my own research about kind of under trying to understand the evidence here. And then sort of some of the times what I found was like, okay, yeah, actually like the advice I was given was right, but it made me feel a lot better to understand it better. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. sometimes it was like, well, actually, I'm not sure that that's the advice that I that I would really want to. I'm not sure that was the right choice for me. And so,
0: mm-hmm.
1: the, it, you know, in the end, that was that kind of was the origin of the first book, like why I chose to turn it into a book as opposed to just keeping it to myself is probably a story for another day. Um, But uh, but then I had written that and, you know, that came out um, now like a bunch of years ago. Um.
0: Oh, I so think it's a story for today. I so think <laughs> so, like, I, so I, people. Okay, so people sometimes
1: ask, like, why did you decide to like actually write this into into a book? And like the thing is that I, 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 I don't know. Um, And I like when I sort of think back, uh, if I had known people would subsequently ask me that question, I would have interrogated my own decision making a bit more. But, you know, I remember kind of thinking, oh, like, I really like to I really like to write, you know, it's a little bit of a different kind of writing than my academic writing, like, why don't I, you know, try writing up some of these things that I've been that I've been doing and, you know, maybe I'll write like some introductions. Like maybe this would be kind of fun. And then I, I sent it to, um, I had like an introduction, a chapter, and then I was like, okay, maybe I'll just send it to like this, you know, ma- like I want, maybe this would be fun to, to do a book. Let me just send it to this, to this agent. So there's like this agent that I knew, um, because she was the agent of, of a colleague of mine. Um, and, and so I sent it to her and so, and she turns out to be this person who's just like, she's like a very um, for, forceful personality. And so she was sort of like, okay, she's like, yeah, this is great. We're, we're going to send it, we're gonna send it right out. We're like, I hear a few changes. We're going to send it right out. And then I was like, oh, oh, okay. And so, and then like, you know, two weeks later, I was <laughs> like going to write this book you know I like told somebody I would write this book for money and so it was it was not um wow it it didn't it was not as deliberate as I might have uh as as you know I think sometimes people people do this um but I was really passionate I mean I really I like I sort of ultimately came to think okay like people really do need to understand this this experience that they're having better so they can sort of have the experience better in a way that makes them happier
0: well I'm kind of curious if 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 some of this passion came, did it stem from having, i mean, like, were you up against some decisions or medical standards that you really disagreed with or felt you were being pressured with? Were you mad? Did you I, get mad? mad?
1: I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure that I was mad. I mean, I think the biggest, the biggest frustration for me for sure was the, um, was in the prenatal testing stuff mm-hmm. um, because I just, I, you know, I, uh, this was, this was a number of years ago, actually, the technologies improved a lot over time, but this was a period in which like the sort of choices were either some kind of, um, invasive sort of genetic testing, um, or something that, that where you involved measuring the neck, the neck, um, yeah. space, the nuchal
0: exactly the nucle, the nucle, exactly, the nucle, yeah.
1: the nucle yeah. thing. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, that, that turned out, actually, there was a lot of false negatives on that. Um, You know, that's not a super precise uh, metric. It's a lot of false positives also. I mean, it's like just not a super precise metric. But because I was mm-hmm. only 31 or something, it, you know, th- they were like, okay, well, this is just you'll have this test. And, and for me, I felt like, well, actually, like, I, I really want to understand better, you know, how much information will come out of this. And I felt like th- that desire was a little dismissed. And I think that was... Um, that was, that was, the experience was frustrating.
0: I think that um, there's a lot of being dismissed during prenatal care when women ask more questions. And, and again, it kind of goes back to the inculturation that we've been, we've been trained in to be pretty submissive. And I think it's a big, a big knock on the head for, you know, smart, independent women who haven't had a lot of medical experience or or healthcare experience where they get into the prenatal care office and all of a sudden you're expected to just kind of submit yeah. and I think the other thing is
1: I don't like that. I think the other thing is that in many of these cases, like you're you're encountering decisions that like you're not actually like you didn't know that decision was coming. I think that was the other thing that was frustrating. We sort of like okay, here you are. Like it's ten weeks. Like let's just like we're just gonna make this decision about this thing. And it was like we have a fifteen minute appointment, and you've only just told me that I have to make this decision. And, Mm -hmm. you know, now you want me to just sort of like, there was, it was not the way that I was used to making important decisions about my life where like, I get to find out that I'm going to have to make the decision and then think about the decision and then make the decision. And I think, you know, and I think part of it is, um, you know, when I had, when I was pregnant the second time, um, I had, uh, I had a midwife um, and, you know, her, like those appointments were much slower. Um, like there was much more oh, yeah. time. Uh, and, you know, partly, of course, I had yeah. done it before, so I didn't have as many questions. I'd already written this whole book about being a pregnant person. Um, but I think it was, it, I think it sure. would, it would have been a different experience the first time also. Um, and a, like, I mean, it's always a little bit more collaborative. Yeah,
0: um, it, it totally is. It's the midwifery model of care is just designed to be able to spend more time with women. Yeah. And, And it's not a a case of, you know, it's better than the obstetric model of care. But obstetricians, as you know, they have to see... A lot more patients yeah. at a faster clip, and they don't have the resources to be able the time resources. Yeah,
1: and it's also it's like different. A, the training is sort of if you think about like an obstetrician is like somebody who is like equipped to do like major abdominal surgery, and so their their time right. is valuable. Like they they you know there's a sort of it's just like a very different model. Um, yeah, it's a very different model. Yeah. So I think yeah, it's not that one is better than, than the other. You know, it happened for me with like, sort of like very uncomplicated pregnancy and and delivery. The model where like. You know, like the best thing that my midwife did with my second pregnancy was tell me, like, if you want to keep running, get this maternity support belt. And it was like, but it was only because we had additional, like we had enough time yeah. that we were able to get into the thing of like, yeah, actually, like I'm, I'm in running and I really like it, but I have to pee every three seconds. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was like only because we had time that we ended up in that conversation yeah. where she was like, oh, like some people find this thing helpful. Like, why don't you try that?
0: Practical, um, action worthy, tips we can practical, use. Practical action. Yeah. T- yeah <laughs> news you can use. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So. In, there's this huge culture in women's healthcare to create magnificent standard of care changes, practically overnight, based on the appearance of a new study. For instance, you know, I'm thinking of uh, the big V-back ban, which took place about—I uh, guess it probably started about 15 years ago—where virtually overnight, there, in light of a new study that indicated greater than average risks for uterine rupture, all of a sudden we didn't do. You know, I was a labor and delivery nurse, and. I was at a hospital that we had been working for several years to get our C-section rate as low as we could go. And then all of a sudden, boom, mm-hmm. no more. No more VBACs, vaginal birth after cesarean. Yeah, yeah. And that happened all over the country. And, you know, the data was wrong. The data was presented in a way that was, was it created a, the situation that we're in today. Mm-hmm. Um you know, yeah. No, there's been a lot of this. I though- mean, you
1: see it, you know, in the, um, the, there are a few of these examples. So that's a good one. There's the, the, like.
0: Hormone replacement I was therapy. actually thinking the
1: breech delivery. Um, that, oh, yeah. The breech delivery one is kind of in, where basically the study suggested that, that, you know, we should be doing C-sections for, for breech deliveries. Um, Which, you know, I think, I think that data is more compelling than the, like, that's a more compelling study than the VBAC study. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it like, the differences are not, were not that big. You know, it wasn't like, it wasn't right. like every outcome for, I mean, many babies have, many breech babies have been delivered safely vaginally. Um, and, you know, that was, so I think that that, but that basically as a result of that, you basically don't see any, almost no breech vaginal deliveries anymore. And then of course, once you, in right. that case, once right. people stop doing them, then you kind of can't go back because you don't know how to, because it's, it's like hard physically like you have to have, you know it's, it's much easier to do if you've done it before
0: even um, and though people
1: have never seen it
0: yeah so even though we are seeing increased incidences of you know maternal mortality and injury caused by that yeah. you know it's it's weird we saw something similar happen you know around hormone replacement therapy where One study of one type of estrogen replacement therapy indicated increased heart and cancer risks and all of a sudden, boom, no more more hormones for menopausal women. And then it turns out that they hadn't looked at other types of HRT and that don't cause those increased risks and the risks aren't as great as they seem. And, you know, it it happens quite, uh, it happens frequently. And do you see it happening as often in men's health? Yeah,
1: probably not, right? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Probably Probably no, not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, um, I spoke with another professor, um, a number of years ago, I believe she's in at Columbia, but I don't have her name in front of me where she, um, said that the number, the percentage of studies that are l- looking at Women's health are such a small section of the total amount of studies that are being produced. Um, it, you know, small section, m- mostly not about women's health. And of that small section, the amount that's looking at maternal health is smaller, smaller, smaller still. And then when you look at the maternal health studies, the ones that are actually looking at women. Is like a micro spec. Most maternal health studies are studying mm-hmm. the effects on the babies, not on women. So women are we're, nobody's looking at us at all. Yeah, nobody wants. You know, this is this is the story.
1: No, it's totally, it's totally right, and it's really a shame.
0: Yeah. I don't really have a question there, but feel free, feel free <laughs> no, to rant no, with me, there's
1: no, no, there's no, I mean, I agree with you. I think there's no, uh, There, there's this sort of like space of just like over, I don't know, overreacting to the evidence we get. And then, and, you know, even, so this is the thing that's come up a lot of people have been raising a lot with me lately is this, in the study space, is this um, study about induction at 39 weeks. Um which just came out and basically said, and, you know, like people have been reading this study to say that everyone should be induced at 39 weeks. Although my reading of the study is more that like, you know, we had a question of whether these kind of inductions would lead to a lot of increased C-sections. And in this particular study, they do not seem to do so. Although of course the like Mm -hmm. kinds of places where they're running these is not, this is not maybe the average, um, you know, of Cetrics unit, uh, let's say. But mm-hmm. at any rate, like, I think that that this is a, you know, if you are, there's a danger of this getting sort of moving to a place where everybody is kind of pre- like pressured to induce it at 39 weeks, which I think for some people is like totally fine. And g- knowing that that is an option is good. Um, but, you know, I didn't want to have an epidural. Uh, that, I Like I, I had a thing that I wanted to have happen when I, when I was getting birth, which is I wanted to like labor at home and I wanted to not have an epidural not didn't want to have the baby at home, but I wanted to like have that as, as an, an option. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I worry that, that people will be pressured not to have that, um, not to have that option in light of this evidence, which I don't think oh, it supports. Oh, they absolutely yes.
0: will. Yeah. yeah it's I, not that we worry that
1: people have already that. told me that that has happened to them. <laughs> so, you yeah. know.
0: Oh hell yes! Oh absolutely, hundred percent. We we've this isn't you know the first study that has encouraged doctors to push women into induction. And I've worked with at hospitals where we've had you know very um, I won't say anti-induction because that's not an appropriate. I mean inductions are appropriate in some circumstances, but you know they don't push them. But but then there are other practices that work in that labor unit who if they could induce or C-section every patient, Mm -hmm. they would, because it's so much more controlled. Yeah. It's organized. It's controlled. You kind of know what's going to happen more or less. You can get your patient on your shift. You can, you know, all of the reasons why that's a good thing. Um, But it doesn't, it, for a huge number of women, they don't see the, domino effect of that. A getting induced when they're not ready to be induced means that they're going to be in the OR for a C-section, which means that they're at increased risk for complications with the next pregnancy. It's just, yeah, the data doesn't support it. Yeah. Maybe maybe we could you know, do some studies that indicate that most of the time, healthy women's bodies do the thing they're supposed to do just fine things. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe Maybe. we can study that. Can we study that? Maybe, probably not. Probably not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Mm. I don't know. I think that parenting and chaos are almost the same thing. And there's, you know, so much you can't control. Primarily because it's not one person. There's an unreasonably small, sticky person in this relationship who's going to do unpredictable things. And for a lot of parents, um, that's a huge struggle. You're, You're dealing with a lack of control in your life all the time. And I'm looking through your books and I see that spreadsheets are in there. <laughs> and there are two economists in your marriage. My husband he'd be right there too. He's a spreadsheet guy. Yeah, he likes his spreadsheets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Does it help? Does this help? Yeah. <laughs>
1: he likes his spreadsheets. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> mm. Um no, so actually, I just to be clear, the section with the spreadsheets, and it does say that the spreadsheets will not help you. <laughs> um yeah I mean I think the the first I don't remember the second one is but I think the first one is it was like you know when my daughter was first came home my husband had this idea that we were going to like keep track of like you know how long she nursed and like you know in like and he has these you can sort of see in a spreadsheet in the book he's got like these very there are some like very precise estimates like very precise numbers like 17 minutes 15 you know 13 minutes whatever and then mine are like 10 20 because it's so dumb um and you know I think that we had this um you know one thing is the doctor Mm -hmm. had told us to like like pay attention to when she to whether she's like peeing um i mean to be clear our doctor is a very reasonable person and did not say like keep a spreadsheet i think she just meant like pay attention to whether your kid ever pees for which you do not need a spreadsheet um but so then when we showed her that she was like yeah that's that's not like that's not what i meant like don't don't, don't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, but I think there is a yeah. sense when you're, when you're sort of so out of control, particularly in the first weeks, like you just like want to do anything that's going to get you that control, you know? And so for somebody who likes spreadsheets, it's like, yeah, like at my job, if I want to organize, like I open up my spreadsheet, I'm like, okay, what am I going to do on the different days? Like, you know, so now I'm going to like use that in my parenting. And I do think there are some, you know, skills that, that we get from our jobs that we can like use in management skills that are helpful in the household and in, and in parenting, but this particular one is not uh, <laughs> one of them.
0: I yeah. liked that part a lot. It made me laugh because it made me think back on, oh, there's so many things that we tried to do to just make ourselves feel like we had a handle on things. And, uh, you know, we started parenting our kids in pre-computer days, but man, oh man, uh-huh. could we work the graph paper <laughs>
1: Yeah. yeah no that's uh yeah my even my parents have like some little entries yeah. you know in uh in their in their in their books of what I was doing
0: we were we were strongly encouraged in those days to mark down and time every contraction, so I bet that somewhere I could find notebook paper that had you know contraction twelve forty two to twelve fifty seven you know so
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, I had, I had a, um, I had an, an app with my first uh-huh. one for like, the, like a contraction yeah. app, you know, where like, but it, the thing is, like, I, I had a sort of somewhat atypical, uh, like labor progression, where like, basically, I had contractions, like sort of like mild contractions, like, but very frequent mm-hmm. for like a very long time, mm-hmm. like sort of like for every three minutes for like, many many hours but not super bad i mean later they were super bad so i was like like these things and i was like every i was like every three minutes i was like wait was that a contraction was that like what what is what is going on and and you know basically then our doula showed up and she was like well don't worry about it like I like. I'll know when you're in enough pain yes. to like need to go to the yes. hospital. Like we not we're not go- like going to the hospital because of what your contraction app says. Like, I am going to tell you when we need to. Yeah, go. yeah.
0: I know. I've I have always told women, believe me, you are going to know. There is not going to be any yeah. doubt in your mind. You're not going to be if you're at the point where you're saying, should we? I don't know. Want a sandwich? Yeah. yeah, it's not time yet. Let's wait. It's not time yeah. yet. No,
1: there's like we read something in one of these like. I don't remember which, which book, it was like one of these, like, um, birthing books, I guess. Uh We read this thing that was like, basically, like, if you are like, taking a picture on the way to the hospital, and you're smiling, like, it's not time to leave. Maybe I wrote (laughs) that book. Just don't, don't. right, it was, sorry, it must have been in the Bradley Method. We had the, like, 1980s, like, Bradley Method style book, and it was like, if you're, if you're feeling good, like, don't, you know, and then with the first kid, we, like, it was, it was great. Like we, you know, we went, I mean, we were still at the hospital for a long time, but like, we kind of like, I think we, t- you know, I was like five or six centimeters when we got to the hospital with the second kid. I think we had not realized that it might go much faster. Yeah. And so I was like napping. And then I like woke up and, and I like had Andy's bathroom. And then, then, then the doula was like, and I, and then I remember telling the doula, like, you know, who was just like there? I was like, you know, like I can see why people like don't want to leave their house in labor. Like, I can see why people would just want to stay in their house. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I think we gotta go.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and then, like, we got to the hospital, and my kid was born. Like, basically, like she was born fifteen minutes after we arrived at the yeah. hospital. Yeah,
0: <laughs> so it's like
1: it's like a little close. We got it a little close. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. Well, I think that it's it's a little bit like. Trying to control the chaos in any way you can makes sense to me in the same way that when you're having a really sucky day, cleaning out your purse really makes you feel better, you know? Yep. It's, Organizing the books. Yes. Yeah. To
1: like organize the books in my kids, like, you know, yeah, you sort of, you're like, okay, this is a thing I'm going to control. Yes. Yes.
0: Uh, it's like Marie condoing your life, you know? Exactly. You pull it together. And, and. Just pull it together. Yeah. All of the <laughs> things are the same, but it looks way better and you feel better. It helps. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally right. Bring on the spreadsheets. Yeah. There was there was one line that I read in the beginning of your book that I just really liked and it was it kind of reflects a lot of what we talk and think about and it, you wrote that it's always tricky to think about policies that rely on rules to effectively remove patient choices. And this links back a little bit to what we were talking about before, you know, about you know, standards of care changes. But um I appreciated that. It is, it is tricky to think about it because we like to think that the policies that are constructed around our healthcare are truly in our best interest. But our interest as a patient, we're just one interest in that healthcare dynamic. We're not even the most important interest in that dynamic. There's the entire healthcare system that is there too. And a lot of what goes on in policy changes. Especially when they're driven by studies um are about them, not about us,
1: yeah, and I think the other you know the other thing is people often ask me, you know we oh so your you know your book says that the evidence you know, suggest the following sort of more nuanced reading of some literature. And like, shouldn't that be what, you know, the policy is? So in, you know, something like co-sleeping, like, mm-hmm. should we, you know, the policy is like, never do this, it's incredibly dangerous. Should instead the policy be like, you know, there, there may be some increased risk, but here are the safest ways to, to do it. Like, you know, should we have a sort of different language around that? And I think part of what's What's tricky is that you know you make policies for for everyone, as you say. Like policies are for, and and with tons of considerations that have mm-hmm. nothing to do with like what does the actual evidence say for an individual mm-hmm. person. So they think about you know what like some of them are about like medical liability. Some you know some aspects of policy are around you know how are people going to interpret this? Who kind of have a different you know, set of educational, like there's just like a lot of things that go on in policymaking that is, that is separate from, from what goes on in in advice that you'd take as an, as an individual. And I think that, um, that's, that's really hard
0: to, yeah, yeah it's hard. It's hard to wrap our brains, our brains around it. And for a lot of, you know, women like yourself who haven't had a long medical history prior to coming to prenatal care, it's the first time that they realize it, that, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. This really is not about me. This is about somebody else's agenda, and it's a hard position to be in as a woman because we are vulnerable. We're worried about our baby, and we all of a sudden realize—not all of us, most of us actually—never realize this. Um, but you know, you you get a sense that you you do have to make all of these decisions, and they're maybe they don't all feel right to you. And, you know, and then if you go against the grain, y- you second guess yourself, you feel so much guilt. And in some circumstances, you know, you get a lot of pressure from your healthcare providers and your family and your culture. Like if you say, I'm not going to do this thing that they're recommending that I do. whoo, whew, whew.
1: <laughs> Yeah, no, you know- I mean, it's it's like the there were these. Sort of, is like particularly towards the end of pregnancy, you know, I had a lot of these kind of you know, whatever. You have a lot of the like the the fluid test and the and the the stress test, and you know, it's something. There's like these tests where they like measure the amount of fluid, um, yeah. which is like super sensitive to like whether you're hydrated basically. And like, you know, and so like a lot of people, so it's true if your fluid is actually like, you know, consistently low, that is problematic. But if you, but most of the time, I think if you have low fluid, it's just like, you're not very hydrated. Right. But then, you know, I had these friends who were like, okay, they measured this like low fluid. And then they like immediately gave me a C-section. It's like, okay, well, I don't like, you know, so, so I, I felt like there was some of the time particularly in that in that part of pregnancy where I was just spending a lot of time thinking about like how am I going to game the system so I don't end up in some situation yeah. where like we've sort of overreacted in some in some way and I never had this fluid problem but then I also like my daughter was like asleep for one of these like non-stress tests um and you know she wasn't you know if they're not moving around then like you don't get the the spikes in the heart the rate and then you know yeah like, oh maybe we should whatever you know do this maybe finish, we so should like, induce you now and they were like yeah. you know so I to, like wake her up um you know by I'm sure, she was having a nice nap in there. You know, you like clap on top of your belly, and then like they wake yeah. up and they move around. Um.
0: We we had this thing back in the day that made this really annoying noise. We called it the buzzer. And if we needed to wake up a baby, we would just take this thing and it looks like a microphone, put it up against the mom's belly, and go. <laughs> and
1: yeah, yeah, that wakes. It up. was
0: a, yeah, super annoying, and it did yeah. the job. And then we'd get our fetal heart monitor spikes, and we'd say, okay. Off you go. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And yeah. I think that there's like, there's, you know, maybe some of that kind of co- common sense approach almost is, um, not, it o- doesn't appear in all, but, you know, I mean, it's uh-uh. interesting because it's so provider specific. And I think that's the other thing that's, that's oh, very so hard to, you know, yes. so, so like I, you know, I like, I mean, I had, Obviously, like my daughter's not great and like, you know, that like, many things that were very nice about, it. but I was in this, my first kid, I was in this sort of very like big city, like kind of obstetrics practice with a very, you know, with high C-section rate and like kind of the practice in this like huge kind of impersonal hospital because it was a big, it was a big city. Um, and you know, here, like, you know, then when I came I moved to Providence, my second kid was born, was born here and it was in a much Providence, like every baby in Rhode Island is like born in the same hospital. Um, mm-hmm. and I had this midwife who was, who was great. And, and, you know, one of my friends is pregnant here and she like another friend of ours, who's like a family medicine doctor is her, is her doctor. And she's awesome. And she's like super like super up on the literature, like knows everything, is really relaxed, is like really smart and thoughtful. And so, you know, I was talking to my, to my, this friend of mine about, you know, what, like sort of birth plan. And I remember thinking like, I have to write down these things because I'm not going to be able to like communicate. And I'm really, I like, these are things that I care about. And, you know, they weren't like, I want this song to be playing when the baby's crowning. They weren't like that. They were like, no, you know, they were like more basic stuff. But I was like, you know, I'm going to have to find a way to communicate this. And so my friend was like, should I have this? And I was like, well, I don't think you need it because like your birth plan is you like have this like doctor who kind of is aligned with your preferences. And so, you know, that's your plan. (laughs) Basically, Mm -hmm. that's a good plan.
0: It is. But, you know, I think that I I have a really different um take on it. I mean, coming from it as a labor and delivery nurse, there was a lot of condescension on people who wrote birth plans. Mm-hmm. You know, like what is she, what is she doing trying to write down what she wants? It was condescending and patronizing. And what it ended up doing was kind of creating this polarizing effect where Women who specifically wrote down intentions, plans, and goals for their birth, which is a 100% appropriate thing for us to do in every avenue of our lives, are all of a sudden in a system where we're being told, that's silly, don't do that. You don't get to have what you want. Just Mm -hmm. go with our plan. It's not cool. Um, And we've done that for a long time. And when you look at you know, the power of the written word and you look at who's documenting that woman's pregnancy, almost none of what's going on for her is being documented by her. It's being documented by her providers and they have specific things that they're looking for, going for, projecting towards, planning on women aren't being encouraged to do the same thing they're being encouraged to just mm-hmm. here read the pamphlets yeah go ahead read some extra material there's a couple books that are kind of good and uh yeah and today's the day you're going to get that test it's i think that women should be way more intentional about mm-hmm. it and should yeah, be putting paper to yeah. pen mm-hmm. well
1: wow.
0: yeah yeah i i think i think that that's how we're going to uh-huh. help control the narrative somewhat it is if women are documenting it too, that's going to change the perspective on what's going on in that room because their perspective will literally be added to the story, you know? Yeah. No, yeah.
1: It's, interesting. it's very I, interesting to think about the role of like having something written as like more important than than verbal
0: Oh, yeah. 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 And I, and I think that, you know, just from kind of a symbolic perspective- it is a woman's pregnancy mm-hmm. and yet most of what we're focused on is the medical community and the baby and we're telling women that what that it's really not their business to be that involved certainly not to be writing it down that's silly don't do yeah. that
1: yeah i mean i think some mm-hmm. i think some in the in the in the second book i think some about <clears throat> this these sort of these issues in the context of postpartum because i think they're in some ways even more so than pregnancy at least when you're pregnant you're you're the vessel for the baby and so there's like yes. important yes. you're playing an important role um and i think yeah. for for a lot of us is sort of this like very you people understand very little about kind of what's going to happen afterwards and it can feel like kind of like everyone was paying right. attention to me and like now like they're all paying attention to this baby and like i don't like why is all this stuff coming out of my vagina um and i so i sort yeah. of spent some time there kind of just going through like here's what's going to ha- like here's Here's what's gonna happen here's what might happen you know here's my like just just sort of like this this kind of thing that your best friend will tell you when you're like eight and a half months pregnant like by the way yeah just so you know your vagina's gonna by tear away and like <laughs> then afterwards you be a lot of blood and yeah. it's not like from trauma it's just like a lot of size. It's like oh, okay like that's i did not know about that yeah, thank know. you for letting me know control yeah. me before i get pregnant yeah. <laughs> that's gonna happen <laughs> <laughs>
0: We didn't tell you because we wanted to have babies together. We
1: wanted to have babies together. You know, find out what it's like.
0: <laughs> oh, well, what else should we talk about? I feel like I feel like I the the big service that I see crib sheet providing and um, expecting better is that it it kind of addresses the fear and guilt that women. It's, it just drives so much of women, what women go through in their healthcare and in their and in their motherhood, and you know they they feel so much guilt when they go with their gut and against the advice of their OB or their pediatrician. You know, like in a lot of families, you know, they know in their heart that the whole family sleeps better when the baby is in bed, mm-hmm. but her pediatrician scolds her not to, and she feels like she's doing the wrong thing, no matter which way she goes. Or you know, same with breastfeeding; everyone tells her you know, that it's the best thing for the baby, but she freaking hates it. And she wants to bottle feed and her, you know, her gut is saying, just use the bottle and move on. But the rest of the world is saying, suck it up, mama breastfeed. You know, I I appreciate that you created something where a woman can look at that and say, no, I'm cool. It's yeah.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, I think the the like the the sort of core of this book is a recognition that like your preferences are important, and that most of these decisions, like there are many good things to to do, mm-hmm. um, and you know that other people, you know, other people's choices may not be the same as your choices. That doesn't mean that you're right or, or they're right. Or, you know, it's like everybody could be could be right. And I think that in so many of these of these settings, you you sort of end up like. So uh, the, there's ends up being so much pressure and so much, uh, so much almost shame in, oh, in yeah. some of the choices that, that, you know, people, people make. And I think it's really not, not
0: productive. I think a lot of it is self-imposed shame because our expectations for what we want and hope for ourselves as mothers is so tremendously high as it should be. But then, you know, we're up against things that, No, really, that isn't part of the good mother, bad mother debate. You'll be just fine doing that. That's fine. You can, yeah, the bad mother list is really very, very, very small.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like there's a few things, you know, you should, you should do or shouldn't do, but like really, like, you know, basically there's a lot of good ways to parent.
0: Yeah. So many good ways. So many good ways. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And so many things that we don't actually have to be that afraid of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we need to wrap things up pretty soon here, but I do want to know um, where can women find Crib Sheet?
1: You can find it at your local bookstore, hopefully, and certainly on Amazon, um, which is where we sell most of our books, honestly.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And where can they find you? And they can
1: find me at Brown University. Um, That's where my academic webpage is. And you can see my papers and what I'm doing.
0: All right. Well, let's do our last few rapid-fire questions. What role does feminism play in your life? Oh my! Try to say that's this, st- like, st- this so is a rapid fire.
1: <laughs> in this
0: yeah. Yeah, no pressure. Okay. No
1: pressure. I mean, I think that I I sort of think about feminism uh, as all the time when I uh, my husband and I have the same job, and I try mm-hmm. to to have us therefore contribute the same uh, the same in our in our household. But I also think there's like a feminist aspect to all of these books that that we are should give women the the opportunity to make the choices that they that they want, and that is sort of the key of that's the key to what we should be doing as feminists.
0: And then support them and respect them when they make those choices, even if they are different than your own. Yeah. How do you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that.
1: Uh, Parenting would be so fun.
0: I like that answer. It is fun, fun. isn't it? It is fun. It's really funny, too. It's (laughs) so freaking funny. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And my last question then is this. Where are you in your life as a mom?
1: happy i think uh my you know my kids are my kids are finally old enough that it's not so exhausting all the time but young enough that Mm -hmm. they still want to spend every weekend with me and it's a good i'm I'm trying to be more mindful about enjoying uh all of the the moments
0: um yeah yeah it's hard to do do. it's hard to be mindful of all the moments because some of the some of the moments just get past you but you look back and don't worry. You remember you, you get it all. It's all there. It's all there. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Well, Emily, I have really enjoyed talking to you. It's been great.
1: Me too. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah. I appreciate your perspective and your books. Thank you. We'll talk again.
1: I'm sure. I hope that we will.
0: Okay. All right. Goodbye. Okay, that's it for this week, folks. You can learn more about Emily's work and find her new book by Googling "Crib Sheet: a data-driven guide to better, more relaxed parenting from birth to preschool. It's everywhere. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulker.com. That's J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R.com. Pick up some books over there on the shop tab. Get a cup of common sense while you're there. And please share the podcast with your friends, sisters, and families. Oh, and one more thing. Go check out the new blog to find links to all those articles I mentioned above today. And sign up to receive my monthly newsletter. That's it. Common Sense Pregnancy Parenting and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Picture Studios. Bye-bye, everybody. We'll talk again next week. If you're looking for easy ways to feed your family, I've got you covered. Hi, this is Liz Weiss, dietitian, mom, cookbook author, and host of the Liz's Healthy Table podcast. Tune in for healthy recipes, expert advice, and a big helping of fun. Come find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, the Parents on Demand Network, or over at my website, Liz'sHealthyTable.com.